right, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 16, and going through to 23.9 today. And we're going to be looking at Laws Part 3. It's very exciting. I know it's the most exciting um, <laughs> three-part series you've ever uh, encountered, Laws. It's not super exciting to us oftentimes, but there is a lot here that's very important for us. Um, but it, we have to consider a few things if we're going to get to how can we apply this to our lives. And the main thing we need to consider is cultural context. There's a lot of cultural context in this passage that we have to keep in mind because things change, right? Over time, there are things that are popular, things that, that were unpopular. You know, sometimes those things switch positions. Um, there's things that are acceptable and unacceptable, and sometimes they switch and become acceptable and unacceptable. Um, for an example, like um, smoking in our country. Smoking used to be accepted everywhere and as just a normal part of uh, everyday life, and now it is uh, very much pushed to the margins. Or it used to be you could smoke in any restaurant, an airplane, anywhere you wanted, um, and, and certainly no judgment uh, if you did. Now it's very, it's, it's, uh, very much pushed to the margins and, and frowned upon by many people. And so um, things change over time, and that's certainly true uh, when we go back thousands of years to uh, this period of time in which um, Moses is giving these laws. It's actually, if you think about it, pretty amazing if we consider how much of the Bible is, can be read without those kind of um, context clues. Uh, that we can just take it at face value and, and read it and, and understand it generally in the way that it was understood by the original people. Um, there's really a lot of that in the, in Scripture. And that's kind of surprising if you consider how old it is that it's so easy for us to understand so much of it. Now, there are certainly parts that are difficult, but so much of it is easy for us to understand. Um, that really speaks to the power of God's Word. So, thing we need to, to, to see today is we're going to see various laws that are, this is kind of a hodgepodge section of laws. But if you kind of look at it closely, you can see some general categories. And we're going to break that down into three even sections uh, to uh, examine it. And, uh, and then we'll ask the question of how does this apply to us? How will this apply to you? Uh, because many of these laws have accompanying punishments even. Um, they were specific to the nation of Israel at the time, specific to God forming this kingdom on earth in which he would be the head. He was showing what it would be like if he were to govern as king. What would his law be and how should it be enacted? Now, for us, that doesn't it doesn't apply in that way. We're not the nation of Israel. We're not forming uh, a government. And so we can't take these and just directly apply them we can't we don't have that power uh, but for us these laws reflect the heart of God and his desire for his people so we can kind of see God's heart in these laws what does he care about that's really the thing to to look at closely and this is what is what do these laws tell us about the heart of God what does it tell us about what God prioritizes what God cares about and we'll look at how we we might apply these these concepts to our own lives so we're going to start off by looking at the first section, verses 16 through 24 of 22. And uh, I titled this one, The Defenseless. Almost all of the, people, the laws in here apply to uh, those who are defenseless in that culture. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price for her. He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. 
If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than to Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children's fatherless. Okay, some kind of a brutal section. We'll take it kind of topic by topic here. The first um, topic he talks about is this scenario is if a man seduces a virgin, right? If, the, if a man seduces a woman, they lie together. They're not married yet. And in this case, this is not a case of uh, this is a, a case of of, con, of a consensual situation of consensual intercourse, not non-consensual intercourse. And that's that's important. It phrases it as a man seduces a woman because that was really the way that it went in that day. That the, there was no other scenario that was that seemed possible to them. And the phrasing simply puts more responsibility on the man than on the woman. Um, and that's really saying that that men we have to take that responsibility that that you do need to to take that um, on to guard yourselves and guard you and and your partner um, to any activity before your marriage against any activity before your marriage before you're married. Um, so in this case, if a couple had sex before marriage, they should rectify their sin by getting married. That's essentially what it says. It talks about a, a bride price that was just the custom of the day. What this teaches us, if we, if we look through this to see, okay, what are the the principles? We can try to live by the same principle, right? Oh, we can't demand it. We can't, um, you know, enact a bride price or something like that. We can't enforce it in the way that Moses and his leaders could. Um, in this case, we can simply try to keep this principle that that um, that sex is meant for a, a husband and a wife. That um, that that's the principle we want to hold true we want to hold to and we can recognize and submit to the fact that god designed sex to be practiced only between a husband and a wife that's really what this this law is is indicating that's what this law is talking about the second thing we see here is uh kind of seems to be possibly out of out of left field where it just jumps in and says you shall not permit a sorceress to live and you might be thinking what does that have to do with um with the defenseless or something like that well, in this case, sorcery and, and, uh, and having a sorceress or a sorcerer even was possible in that day as well, um, although it was less common. My papers are falling everywhere. It was a form of false worship. And not only that, but the sorceress would um, prey on those who were helpless and hopeless, those who were down and out, those who were destitute. She would charge them money in order to read their fortune or perform some kind of spell in order to give them good luck or something like that. And, and so she would actually be preying on those who were in this helpless, vulnerable situation um, and making money on them. And so that was kind of a twofold thing that that was uh that was in there to where they say we're not going to have any sorcery any worship of the occult um around and 
So for us, we, should, we can look at this and say we should stay far away from anything related to the occult, anything related to demon worship and those kind of things. We shouldn't be uh, messing around with it. And, and people certainly do, even those who are within our churches. And he's saying we should stay far away from those things. Secondly, whoever lies with an animal should be put to death. This, again, seems extreme and also seems like no problem for most of us. We go, that's not an issue. Uh, I don't have to worry about that at all. Not going to, not going to, never going to happen. Um, but for them, this is, this is also in there because uh, this was also a form of, of worship, of pagan worship at the time. And so this would not only be uh, wrong in terms of just the biology and, and, and physically how, how God made us, that kind of things be wrong, but also in terms of the fact that they would be going to worship these false gods. And so then we have the next one, which is no sacrificing to false gods. And not only was it entirely unacceptable for God's chosen people um, to uh, worship someone other than Yahweh, but it also often involved evil acts. For example, Baal worship often involved depraved uh, sex acts, often unconsensual acts. Um, the worship of Molech often involved, um, it involved child sacrifice. And so these were like not just the fact that like, hey, you're going to worship in the name of some other God, but in order to do so, they would be doing something that was very evil. And this teaches us that we, we must worship God alone. We cannot allow the worship of other things or deities to be mixed into our worship. And again, all these things, we see it in our culture as well. We see people, and I've seen Christians that get into horoscopes or um, get into um, different, you know, burning sage and other things to ward off evil spirits and 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 all these kind of mystical things that just kind of are generally religious that don't aren't necessarily attached to one particular religion and we think we can just mix that in a little bit right i can just have a little bit like i can just play with a ouija board that's no big deal all of these things are exactly what this is talking about here and it seeps in and and undermines and undercuts jesus and he says i want to be worshiped alone i don't you don't need to be going after anything else and that's what we see here and the last thing that we see in this section, these last, the last three verses, 21 through 24, was really just about God saying not to mistreat the vulnerable. He says, there are vulnerable among you, and you should not be mistreating them. And he highlights three particular groups of people, um, and these will be repeated throughout the Old Testament as highlighted as these are the vulnerable people. And they are threefold. They are, they are foreigners. Or you can also call them sojourners, or you can also call them immigrants. You can call them outsiders. Um, those on the margins, those that were coming into Israel that were not Israelites. They were going to come live among the Israelites, but they were not Israelites. They would be vulnerable because they were not um, of the people. Secondly, you had widows, and third, you had orphans. So foreigners, widows, and orphans, those are repeatedly in in the Old Testament marked as these are the vulnerable among you that you need to watch out for. We can really apply it across the board, though, to anyone who is vulnerable in our society, that there are those that are um, that don't have someone to stand up for them, don't have someone to look out for them, don't have someone to protect them. God takes it very, very seriously that we treat them well, that just because no one else is standing up for them, we should stand up for them. We should watch out for them. All right, the next section is uh, uh, kind of roughly and not entirely uh, on money. He says this, verse 25 through 31. If you lend money to any of my people with 
with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is not only his, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field, and you shall throw it, you shall throw it to the dogs. Okay, we see a couple things here. First section we see just lending, and this is really talking about verses 25 through 27. He mentions that Israelites should not charge interest to one another, not charge interest to the poor that you're lending money to if they are an Israelite. He also talks about um, Israelites not making each other suffer for the sake of money, right? that if you take a cloak and in their day you didn't have multiple cloaks, not didn't have a whole closet full of clothes and blankets and all these things. That was often not only your jacket, but also what you slept in. Um, it was everything that you had to keep yourself warm. If you had to give that in pledge, just saying give it back to them at night. Allow them to be warm at night. Don't keep it from them um, for, the whole, for the whole time. You can take it back in the morning. Uh, it's not wrong to have it in pledge, but don't take it and keep it and make him suffer for the fact. He says, because God is compassionate and he'll defend those who are oppressed. And if you oppress someone for the sake of money, God's saying, I will defend it. I'll hear them. I will deal with you if that happens. And what this means for us is that we shouldn't profit at the oppression of others, right? We should be considerate and compassionate in how we deal with money, how we make money, how we conduct business, um, so that we're not profiting at the expense of someone else, at the suffering of someone else, that so we don't take advantage of those who are in need. And we should give special consideration to our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I think in the same way that the Israelites were told to, to watch out for one another and not be trying to make tons of money off each other and, and oppress one another, saying the same thing for, applies to us as the church, that we should look out for one another um, and, and not put money above our relationships. The next thing he says is respect authority. And this is one verse in here, verse 28. He says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And he kind of ties these ideas together, right? He ties them together by pairing them here, that you should not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. In, um, in Hebrew, this is a kind of poetry that you put these parallel ideas together and they, they have a relationship to one another. And what he's saying is that how you treat God and how you treat those who are in positions of authority have a relationship. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he also says this same thing. He ties these same ideas together in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, where he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is a God's servant for your good, 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, I'm going to, while I talk about this, I'm going to go back to verse 1 and put that up there because I really want us to think about this and and wrestle with this right now because this is a difficult thing to hear. This is a difficult passage to encounter at a time when so many of us are questioning the wisdom of the governing authorities. I think this first this first verse is in Romans 13, 1 is, and really this whole section is just, is pretty convicting right now when it says let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God that's hard to believe sometimes for me that, that there is no authority except from God and that those that exist have been instituted by God that is difficult to understand because there are a lot of people that have been in charge even outside of our country, right? Certainly there have been dictators, there have been people who have been in a position of authority who have been evil, who have been wrong. And yet here it says that God instituted them. God put them in that place, um, not always because what they do is good, but because he has a purpose for it. Um, It's difficult, something for us to wrestle with and something for us to consider that God is saying, if you respect me, you should respect those who are in authority. Um, and that's, that's also can be especially difficult to apply this in a in a democracy uh, because we have some say over our government right in Paul's day. And, and this is another thing to, to consider the fact that Paul, he was writing as he's living under the authority of the Roman government, a government that imprisoned him on multiple occasions, uh, beat him, punished him on multiple occasions. Um, and yet here he is saying we should respect those authorities. They've been put there by God. That's a, that's incredible that he would say that, and it's convicting for me given the fact that if I feel discontent with our government, if I feel frustrated with the state of our our, our authorities and our leaders and our rulers, um, how can I say that I am more than Paul? How can I say that I that I'm struggling with it more than that that I'm more oppressed than Paul? Paul is certainly more oppressed than we are. Um, and yet he says we should respect the governing authorities and that they've been put there by God. But I think the key that, that was key for Paul, and I think it's key for us, is recognizing that God is ultimately in charge, that ultimately he is the ultimate authority and that he has a purpose and he has a plan in all of this, even those who seem to not be doing the right thing, even those who we disagree with strongly, even those who we think are out out to lunch, like out out of left field, that they're wrong all up and down the board, that even them, God has a reason that they are where they are, even if it is their downfall or even if they are causing things to go downhill. We can trust that he has a plan, that he is in charge. And I find my greatest comfort in these things when I get frustrated with the state of our government, with the state of politics and all this stuff. My greatest comfort is knowing that I am first and foremost, a citizen of the kingdom of God, that my allegiance first and foremost is to him and not to any earthly leader. And that as I submit to him, I can submit to anyone because I trust him. 
take care of me. I, I hope that encourages you as well as I know. I know it's frustrating right now. I know it's so frustrating right now in how we're dealing with, uh, with the governing authorities. But this is just happened to fall in this week. I, I have no idea. But this is perfect timing for, for us and for, for me to read this and be reminded that, that this is what God wants for us is to, to, to listen to those who are in authority, even if they're doing the wrong thing sometimes. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't certainly sin. We certainly wouldn't be led into sin. We would want to do what what is right, but other than that, we should be doing. We should be showing honor and respect to those who are in authority, even when it's difficult. All right. Next, offerings. He also in, in verses twenty nine through thirty, he talks about not delaying in our offerings, not delaying in um, in giving him what he has given, giving him a portion of what he has given us. Right? You should not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. There would have been a temptation for the Israelites to kind of hold back some, to, um, to delay offering until they were sure the rest of the crop had come in, that everything was coming in well. Um, and he's saying, don't, don't do that. He's saying, give, give it to me from the beginning. Trust that I will provide for you. And that's the same thing it means for us, right? That it's tempting for us to sometimes delay, to, to feel afraid and uh, and to kind of hold up and, and hoard supplies and, 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 and finances. But he's saying, if you trust me, you, you're going to give from the first fruits as well. You're going to give from the beginning. You're not going to to hold back or delay just because uh, things are things are rough. You're going to trust that God is in control. And then the last section that he talks about here is is interestingly um, kind of roadkill. Right? He talks about those things that are torn by beasts. Right? He's saying that any flesh that is torn by beasts, leave it in the field. Don't throw it to the dogs. Don't eat it yourselves. And he talks about that they were permitted. They were not permitted to eat animals that had been attacked by by beasts that were kind of there and they could salvage some of it. They're saying you're not allowed to eat that. And it was a symbol of their holiness before God, that they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and they would keep themselves holy in this way. But for us, um, this is one of the regulations that that Peter uh, that is lifted when Peter receives a revelation from God regarding eating clean and unclean animals. This is in Acts chapter 10. You can go read it for yourselves. He kind of gets this revelation and it takes away these kind of food restrictions that um, that were that were that, that we'll see see more of as we move through the old testament um but personally we're still meant to be set apart from god we're still meant to be a kingdom of priests but our our purity comes and is shown in a different way our our holiness is shown in a different way so you can feel free to eat all the roadkill you you want all right evil intents is our last section here chapter 23 verses 1 through 9 he says this you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous 
for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for no for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay. So the first thing we see here is uh, about false reports from verses 1 through 3. And this is an expansion of the commandment not to bear false witness, right? We've already been given that, don't bear false witness. He kind of gets further into the heart of the matter. He gets specific, and he's like, Do, you should not spread a false report maliciously with an evil intent. You should not go along with a popular opinion if you know that it's wrong. Um, you should not show favoritism to the wealthy or really anyth- anyone else for any reason, that you should not have these um, these kind of motives. And this is also true for us today, right? This is just as true for us that we should, um, consider our motives, consider our heart. Oftentimes we can get around the technical side of uh, bearing false witness, right? We can say, well, I technically, I didn't lie. I was able to get around it. I was able to just leave stuff out and technically I didn't lie. But really, this gets to the heart of the matter that he's saying. It, it matters what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind. Are you intentionally doing this in a way to profit from it somehow or to hurt someone in some way? He also talks about animal cruelty a little bit here in verses 4 and 5, um, where he talks about there's a scenario where you're walking by, you see uh, a donkey, and it's, it's your neighbor's donkey, and, and you don't like him at all. Uh, and it's like overburdened and it's it's falling down saying you got to go rescue that donkey just for a couple things here first is that he he talks about being kind to one's enemies um and and their animals right he highlights that one should do this for one's enemies presumably because one would naturally do it for one's friends right that's the idea is that he's highlighting the fact that this is your enemy because you would naturally go help your friend with his issue um and we see it, it both being good for the animal and for the human being, right? That the animal is also being helped. That's kind of the, the key thing here is he's saying, go help that animal. Don't let it suffer just because you don't like its owner. Um, and so that's, that's true for us in, the, in this way, that even if we have a dispute with someone, we should show kindness to them in general. Even if we're, we're upset with somebody, even if we're angry, even if they have, have harmed us in some way, we should show kindness to them. And then in, in general, we should treat animals well, regardless of how we feel about their owners. Next, he talks about perverted justice in verses 6 and 8. He says that Israelites should not allow just, justice to be perverted because of the social standing of the accused. He's saying you should not allow justice to be perverted because someone is lower class or because of their certain race or any other reason that would make them an outcast or an outsider or less influential. He's saying, don't don't change what is right based on who the people are that are involved in the case. And he talks about not taking a bribe, not to allow money to influence us in terms of what is right and wrong. And that applies to us equally today. Right? That is that is certainly true for us to, to this day as well. And then lastly, he talks again about sojourners. He re- reiterates his stance on how the Israelites should treat foreigners. Uh, they should remember what it was like to be a sojourner, remember what it was like to be a slave in a foreign land, uh, to be a foreigner, to be an immigrant, to be an outsider. Um, and that's and that they should treat them the way that they wish they had been treated. And what this means for us is that 
um, we want to consider how that applies as well. And I know when I say words like immigrant and foreigner, um, that brings up a lot of things in our culture right now. And here's what I would say to that, is that regardless of how you feel about the immigration system, we're going to take that and go ahead and set it aside. Whatever you feel about how that should work and what arguments you want to make about your government, I'm kind of setting that aside right now. We don't need to, to argue about that. That's kind of outside of my area of expertise. I don't know about that. But when you encounter someone in your community, when you encounter a person who is an outsider, whether it's because they're a foreigner, because they're an immigrant, whatever their situation is, they're on the outside of your society. They're on the outside of your group. Treat them well. That in your personal life, how do you treat people who are outside, who are not part of your community? How do you treat people who are foreigners, who are immigrants, that you personally know? That's really where the rubber meets the road here is, is not what do you think about policy? How are you going to vote about this thing? But how do you treat people one-on-one? -on -one? How do you treat those who are outside? Because he's saying you should treat outsiders well and you should have a heart of compassion. That God cares for the vulnerable. He cares for the oppressed. He cares for the foreigner. He cares for the widows, the orphans, those who are shoved to the side and kicked aside, who are oppressed, saying that's where his heart is that's what these laws reflect that god wants to protect those who don't have anyone to stand up for them if you want to reflect the heart of god that's what you have to do in your own life as well stand up for those who can't have no one to stand up for them protect those who have no one to protect them that's what god's talking about here wrap it up with this how should we then live a couple options possible takeaways from today Number one, um, show special care and attention to those who are the most vulnerable. That we want to show special care and attention to those who are most vulnerable. We want to have the heart that God has for those people. Number two, we should honor God first and foremost in our finances. Right, that that how we what, what we do with our money, both in terms of to other people and and in terms of of what we do, what we give to God. Uh, matters, right? That we should put God first, that he should be honored first in how we treat people in, in all of these things. And then lastly, check the intentions of your heart and not just what you actually do. It can be easy just to focus on, well, I here I technically I got over the bar. Technically I, I passed the test. Technically I didn't sin. God's not so interested in technically. He's interested in what's going on inside. What's going on in your heart? What are your motives? What's the what's deeper down? Not just did I technically get by let's pray heavenly father we thank you for this morning where we can bow before you bow before your word and be humbled by it god there's i don't think it's possible that anybody has gotten through this without being convicted without feeling like they are um that they've fallen short and we know that we all have fallen short god we know that we all sin and we all are, are fallen short of of your glory and that is why we are so grateful that you sent your son jesus and we're going to remember that now as we take communion together as we share in the broken body and shed blood of jesus we want to remember and celebrate the fact that you died for us that you gave your life for us that we might find forgiveness we might find hope we might find new life in you in your name we pray amen Right now, I'm going to uh, play some music. If you, you have a chance to prepare your heart for communion, and then um, we'll come back and we'll take communion together. Thanks. <laughs>